You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. to read two texts for you. The first is from the book of Titus. It's really just a background or parallel text to the main text, but I think it says uh, much the same truth, perhaps in slightly different words. And then I'll turn to our text in Colossians as we continue studying there at Colossians chapter 1. Both, of course, written by the Apostle Paul, letters to the churches or to individuals, in this case to Titus, his fellow apostle and helper, listen to Titus 3, beginning at verse 3. This is God's Word. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envied, being hated and hating one another. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit by whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to, tr- to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, for these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And now, backwards a bit to Colossians. We've been studying this letter now a number of weeks. I'll actually, sometimes you have to get a little bit of a running start. Our concern is verses 21 to 23, but I'll back up to verse 19, which we've already covered in some form. Listen again to God's Word. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Christ and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Our Father, help us to focus on and take to our hearts that which you would teach us by your Spirit in this, your eternal and perfect word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I feel pretty sure that our media-saturated and internet-connected society today in American culture has just about lost all sense of privacy and along with it any sense of 
shame. There isn't anything sacred anymore. It used to be the lives of so-called stars that were blabbed about in the tabloids as if we really cared about their divorces and their secret misdeeds. But now no private compartment of any life seems to be safe from the invasion of a voyeuristic digital camera or a reporter's intruding microphone. The lives of common people, in fact, the sort of the new thing on television is just to go out and invade ordinary people's lives and find out all the embarrassing things that are going on with them. I was thinking, I can't really quite imagine this situation happening, but if I got in a situation where a journalist was able to blackmail me and was able to say to me, look, there's going to be a terrible consequence unless you tell me the deepest, most embarrassing, dark sin that is in your life. Tell it right now or there'll be consequences. Well, I know what I would tell. Get ready. You're going to hear it. The darkest and most painful thing that I can think of that I would have to confess would be this. I was once the enemy of God. I was once God's enemy. And as such, I didn't love the God of the Bible. I didn't seek after him. I wasn't desirous of what he could do for me. I certainly didn't want him to rule over me or impose on me his conditions or his terms of how I should be saved or how I should live. I once was God's enemy. Now, if that shocks you a lot, man, maybe you're ready, you know, in the gathering space after church to start circulating a petition and say, hey, we can't have a man as our pastor who's God's enemy. I have to tell you two other facts. The first is, I'm not God's enemy anymore. And the second is, each and every person listening to me right now either is God's enemy this moment, or you have to say along with me that once you were. A couple weeks ago, we stood on what I would call the doctrinal summit of the letter of Colossians. Verses 15 through 20 are absolutely marvelous. They're well worth memorizing. Short, pithy statements of the grandeur and supremacy of Christ, not just in the church or the life of Christians, but in all of creation and all the dealings of God. As the Christ of God, Jesus of Nazareth, we were told is a person of not just historical, but even cosmic importance. He is the image of the invisible God. He participated with God in the creation itself, and now he is Lord and ruler over a new creation that includes particularly his church on earth, but also will include even the remaking of the creation. And we're told, too, that by the shedding of human blood by this Christ, who was Jesus of Nazareth at one time, he being God and man was able to make 
peace, resolving the most basic conflict in the universe and deferring the wrath of God from those who trust in what he did. Peace with God, available because of what Christ did. Now, people in this small church in Colossae, as far as we can try to put it together, what the issue was going on there, and you have to glean it from the kinds of rebuttals or replies Paul makes in the letter, were being taught some falsehoods, and they were things that, at least in a general way, Christians can still hear today. Some kind of fast-talking preachers or teachers came in, and they said, well, you know, Paul got you going in the right direction. He gave you a good start in talking about that gospel of grace and what Christ did for you. But now, let's give you Christianity 201. Let's go on and have you learn the advanced things that only we can teach you. Uh, Truths about cosmic beings and, and angels and various principles that only the initiated know. And if you will follow and know what we know, then you will really go on and be true and fulfilled Christians. And throughout this letter, Paul was saying to that, no, Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. He is the greatest thing you can hope to know about God the Father, and he is the entire sufficiency of a Christian's trust. When you have him, you have everything. And so we move to verses 21 to 23 today. We have been spoken about as the church, the new creation of God. And exactly how that happens in us is going to be spelled out here in these few verses. I think we can tend to have too low a view of ourselves or especially of our standing in Christ as Christian believers. Some people come along and talk to the pastor, and they say, well, yeah, I trusted in Jesus, but I'm not really sure that anything's very different for me. I'm not really sure that my life and my outlook and, and what I trust in and how I act is, has actually been made very different by being a Christian, if, if they were really being honest, at least. Not too many will probably say that quite that openly, but that's what they imply. Well, mistaken thinking on the full experience of being a new creation by trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to lead you into all kinds of problems. I've got three very simple points today as we follow this text, and they correspond to the three verses, 21 through 23. First of all, we need to see what we all were, then where we now stand, and thirdly, how we go forward upon this new standing we have in Christ. Colossians 1.21 makes the first point, what you, now I'm addressing presumably Christian believers. I'm not because that's who Paul's addressing. You see, sometimes you have to be sure you understand who's being talked to. Paul's not talking to the world in general when he says you once were something and now you're, <coughs> you're something else. He's talking to Christians. What were you once? Well, here he tells it. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. As I was thinking about this verse, I was thinking there's probably a lot of you who are quite like me in that your 
Christian faith you would date in your life as having a, its most significant beginning at some point in your childhood or fairly early life, maybe early teenage years or something like that. Now, there are exceptions. There are adults here who have come to Christ in a dramatic way, but many of us look back and, and we were children, and some can't even say, well, there wasn't any dramatic moment. I was pretty young, and I, I just can't remember not trusting in Christ. Well, if that's your case, as it is mine, you probably don't have distinct thoughts and memories in your mind of a time when you went through conscious hostility against God, a time when you were really battling God, you were mad at God, you had many agnostic thoughts, and it led you into perhaps, not necessarily, but perhaps even immoral behavior or wrong associations in a a life that really would fulfill what's being said here, alienated from God. And yet many of us would say, well, I can't remember that. That's not a conscious part of my life. What I want to say to you, if you're like me, is don't think that Paul is only describing other people just because you didn't have a wild anti-God life at some time. What he's describing here is a universal condition derived from the fall of mankind into sin. And when he says that there are people who were alienated from God, he's saying there's nobody exempted from this. This was a condition that was ours by being born into this world. We weren't born into this world with a you know, sort of spiritual silver spoon in our mouths, entitled to all the things of God, the blessings of God, and, and we just naturally loved them and, and naturally looked to God and clung to Him unless something really went wrong. No, Paul says that's not the way it works. You were born with a mindset. The center of your thinking, which governs behavior, was anti-God. Now, there are many scriptures that would bear this out. I'll mention a couple. Romans 121 speaks about all mankind and says, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, and their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, while that described some people who were still out there in the darkness when Paul wrote Romans 1, he was writing it as a general statement of what had happened to all of mankind. That epic first chapter of Romans goes on and says with with this darkened thinking, some people went further and further down and down and and started worshiping material things and sexuality and, and all kinds of things other than the true God. But it was a basic condition present in every person born. Now, you and I, as I say, might have come into the world or, or come to Christ in the world early enough, young enough that we didn't live out in a way that we remember the worst possible consequences of this alien mindset. And, and Romans 1 does get into some worst-case scenarios that may not have been true for you. But nevertheless, we were in this alienated condition, set against God by nature of our births. There was a B.C. time in our lives before Christ. Ephesians 4.18 is another passage that talks about our nature before we become new in Christ. It tells about people who are, quote, darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Do you know people like that? Maybe somebody comes to mind particularly, but as you think about other people who are 
darkened in their understanding and separated from the light. Maybe their sort of profane character or speech or, or behavior makes them stand out to you. But, you know, as you think about other people, you ought to be able to be ready to say, Christian, once that was me. But God's grace has changed it. You know, we're very self-deceived if we diagnose the human condition and say, well, you know, people aren't that bad. People are basically good. They're okay. Some are worse than others, but the main problem with most is they're just ignorant or they're apathetic. Well, that's not the Bible's diagnosis of mankind. And here's where many Christians of a more liberal mindset go astray from the very fundamental truths of the gospel as they try to, you know, brush mankind off and make us look not so bad. The Bible says it is bad. Deep down in our nature, there is that wonderful biblical word, enmity. Enmity. It means a lot of things, but it means basically warfare between man and God. Romans 5.10 says, it was while we were God's enemies that we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. And so our natural human estate is not an estate of just being apathetic or being not interested enough. It's not innocent at all. It's actually a state of hostility. Now, this is an unwelcome truth. The world doesn't want to hear this truth. And the world finds ways to take this truth out of the preaching of the gospel because there's nothing more offensive to the natural man than to hear that there is an all-sovereign, all-holy God to whom we are accountable, and we cannot muster up in ourselves the performance or the deeds or the credits or whatever it is, what the Bible calls righteousness, that is going to please him. We can't do it by ourselves, and people don't want to be told that. They'd rather be told anything but that. People want an idealistic God who will kind of stay in his place. And so they make such a God, and you hear it all the time. They say, well, my idea of God is, you know, the minute you hear that, your mind should go click. We're not talking about the Bible anymore. We're talking about the idol of God that you have made. My idea of God is he ought to be here when I call on him. He ought to be ready to do things for me when I ask, and he ought to deliver within a reasonable time frame, or else I'll just say he's false, and and I'll go away angry the rest of my life, despising him. Well, sure, many people do end up despising the little gods that they create to substitute for the God of the Bible, the God who is utterly holy and utterly sovereign. Such a God alarms people because he reveals them to be in a ruined and helpless condition. I think many of you know I love the life, the biography of the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield, great man of God, unbelievably used of God in his time. And George Whitfield had a penetrating ministry both in Britain and America. He had the opportunity to speak to common people and aristocratic people and even to the king of England. He had numerous aristocrats who were saved and came to Christ, and they would open their lavish homes and invite in their friends, you know, the the crown princes and the duchesses and and whoever, you know, lord and lady something, and and say, come on over. We're going to have this Mr. And people would come because he was a curiosity. He is famous in the land, and they wanted to check this guy out. Well, one time Whitfield had such an opportunity to 
preach to some so-called nobility. And he told the dukes and the princes the same thing about their basic human nature as he told the coal miners or the beggars who gathered in the open fields when he preached. And it's recorded that one wealthy duchess, hearing Whitfield preach about human depravity and the idea that she was God's enemy by nature and dead in her trespasses and sins, turned later to her duchess friend and rather sniffed, you know, in her comment about the whole thing in a very dismissive way. And she said, why? It is simply monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as all the common wretches who crawl upon the earth. This is entirely insulting to my high rank and good breeding. Well, I hope that good lady who long since stood before the living God when she died did not come and tell God that she expected a place reserved for her based on her high rank and good breeding. Her comment only showed how spiritually dead she really is. Many so-called Christian theologians will disavow this notion of what we would call the depravity of man, what we once were. But the Bible's so clear about it in place after place. This is what we all were, and Christians are people who know it, you see. Those who don't know it still are in that condition. But at least Christians can talk about it in the past tense and say, that's what I was before God dealt with me. But really, one of the things it means to be a Christian, reborn by faith in Christ, is to be able to say once, I was God's enemy. I really was. But now, Christ has given me a whole new standing. Let's look at that. The second point being made in verse 22. Knowing what we were, now we're told where we now stand, the position that we have in Christ. Here it is. The text says, now, you see the time, once this was true, now this is true. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you as holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. That's a grand summary of the effect of the gospel. It's the effect of what other places call justification. Except here the word reconcile or reconciliation is the operative word. And, and for all intents and purposes, there's no difference in, in being reconciled and being justified. Being justified describes a, a legal transaction. God has taken what was against you, removed it from your record, and transferred into your record the perfection of Christ. And so we, it can be said here, despite the fact that we were sinful and we still are, we, because of Christ, have become flawless in the eyes of God. Elsewhere you know the Scripture talks about the robe of the righteousness of Christ being wrapped around us. This is what will be true about us on a future day when we stand before God, but it's also what is true of every believer right now. It's effective. It's accomplished. God, this text is going to say here, has made, actually the next verse says it, but has made peace with us. He has made peace with us. One of the most popular missionary books for, I don't know, it seems like probably 15 or 20 years now, not sure just when it was written, is a book by a man named Don Richardson. 
I'm sure many of you have read it. It's called Peace Child. Mr. Richardson wrote about a tribe called the Sawi, S-A-W-I, Sawi people in New Guinea. A very primitive tribe in a primitive land. These people lived their entire lives, and it seemed like all their village life and their individual life was dedicated to an agenda of violence, treachery, murder, headhunting, and even cannibalism. And no village trusted any other village. You might have had two villages. They might have only been a mile apart. And everybody in it was like an island unto itself and regarded the people in the next village as their enemies. And if somebody came along and tried to show, you know, sort of a friendly relationship or stick out a hand, hello, how are you, from one village to the next, everybody suspected it. They thought it's a trick. They're up to something. Why would they be friendly to us? But there was one sacred canon of this primitive Sawi culture. that I had, Where it came from, nobody knows. But over the years, it had built up. And it was something that could be done that would cause violence and suspicion and mistrust to immediately halt. And that was if one village would have the child, preferably a son of a leader in the village, be given to the other village to be raised amongst them as literally a living gift, a child given to the neighboring village as a sign of peace. That was highly respected. And when that was done, why, there was never any suspecting that there were wrong motives behind that. In fact, Richardson tells that, that the people would come when that child arrived in their midst and they would just want to touch him. Because he represented an absolute bond of of trust and peace that they could believe in. Now, I'm sure you see the analogy with the gospel. But it's it's an imperfect analogy because, you see, the Sawi peace child only partially did what Christ has done in this regard. The Sawi child was given to the next village, and the family that gave the child knew the child was going to live. He just wasn't going to live in their house, in their village, but they would probably see him as he grew to manhood from time to time, and and their baby would be alive. Paul makes an emphasis here in Colossians 1.22 that God gave his peace child. And he's saying, in effect, stop and think who my peace child was. He's the same Christ I've been talking about since verse 15. The Christ who is the image of the invisible God, who is the co-creator, who is the Lord of, of all things and is reconciling the universe back to me and undoing the work of the fall. This child, no less than he, here, Paul says, was given up not to go live among another people, but to go and die, and die at the hands of ruthless enemies, An ugly, barbaric, shameful death on a military torture rack. The son of the highest God, the one who is called Christ, who is all supreme. You see see the emphasis coming together. This one became in human flesh a naked, bleeding man who was treated worse than we would tolerate any animal in our society being treated. And by that 
treatment, he affected peace with God for all who believe. God took the initiative in this. He's saying, you see, God reconciled, but reconciliation costs. It's costly to God. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so by doing that, he condemned sin in sinful man. And he goes on and says the mind of sinful man is death. There it is, all that alienation and everything. But the mind controlled by the Spirit of God is life and peace. Reconciliation has occurred. Think of the enormity of what it took, you see. It wasn't just God waving a magic wand. It was the giving of this enormous gift culminating in the death of Christ. So there would be a peace child, a peace man, Christ himself, who would cancel our hostility with God. Now for every believer in Christ, in other words, God has removed that alienation, that warfare. He's He's undone, in a manner of speaking, the curse of the Garden of Eden. And what we have, therefore, what Christians have, is a radically changed position. Now, you see, we get mixed up because we expect our our whole lives and minds and thinking and bodies to suddenly be changed when we become Christians, as if, you know, like fairy dust was sprinkled over us. I went to see Peter Pan musical at Mannheim Township High School, and Peter sprinkles fairy dust, sparkling dust over the children, and they can fly. I think some people think that's what becoming a Christian is going to be like. My whole behavior, my whole way of thinking is going to immediately change. No, but you know what is immediately changed? Your spiritual position. Your standing in the universe with God. There's a new verdict about you now. And the verdict is not alienated. It is not dead in trespasses and sins. The verdict is reconciled, justified, enmity canceled for this person. And so Paul can say, we shall be presented perfect in God's sight. This isn't the boast of somebody who said he had a perfect life. This is the same man who called himself the chief of sinners elsewhere. But he knew his spiritual standing and position had been changed. And so he could say, everything is different now. Everything is changed about how I stand with God. Well, then how do we we go on from this wonderful transformation, the new creation of the gospel? In the third place, quickly, we ask that question, how do we go on from here in verse 23? And maybe you're surprised. I think I was when I first studied this again, that verse 23 begins with a condition. It actually is the middle of a sentence. Go back a minute now. You're you're going to be presented. God's reconciled you through Christ's body, through death. He presents you holy in His sight, without blemish, free from accusation. If, oh, there's an if. I knew it. There's a catch. There's a condition. If what? If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved, from the hope held out to you in the gospel. Now, is this saying that God has done this marvelous thing, this wonderful spiritual transaction, but now the continuation of it all depends on you? God has done it. God has accomplished it. Don't you blow it. Is that what it's saying? Not exactly. 
You see, when we talk about a Christian persevering in faith, there's actually two different words that are just about interchangeable in our continuation in the Christian life. We can legitimately talk about persevering, going on in Christ, clinging to Christ, giving attention to things, putting our focus on this, praying, seeking to live an obedient life. That's all based in effort that we have to make. But every theologian would understand the New Testament to say alongside perseverance is another word, preservation. We persevere because we're being preserved. Because God in his grace has started a work in us. You know the text that says, he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So what is your continuation doing but simply cooperating with the operative grace of God at work in you? I always stress in our new members class, of, they, I think they get tired of me stressing it, but you ought to know this verse. You ought to memorize Philippians 2, 12, and 13 that says that you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it doesn't stop there. Actually, it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to act. We persevere in following Christ because Christ in His grace preserves that which he begins. That's the the two-sidedness we have to see on this if clause here in Colossians 1.23. I was thinking, you know, this time of year we see so much on the TV news uh, reports about tornadoes and their terrible damage, even right here, not so far from us recently. Some homes destroyed, and as you well know, some parts of mid-America just get smashed suddenly by these huge winds over 100 miles an hour. And you know one thing that's almost always a part of that. It, it seems to me, in fact, it's as though tornadoes have some kind of a seek-and-destroy magnetic device that they say, where are the mobile homes? Lead me to the mobile homes. Isn't that true? You know, you usually see mobile homes that have been picked up like little cardboard boxes and wham, dropped to earth 100 miles, or 100 miles, 100 yards probably away, and just flattened, devastated. While there might have been quite close by a more traditional home on a concrete foundation with a basement and so on where people sought shelter and, yeah, maybe the roof got blown off or it took some damage, but it's roughly intact. Well, I think there's an analogy here for this text. Because Paul is saying, know your foundation. You know, I think there could be people that could look at this text and say, there's nothing practical in this text. I hear that. You know, I've heard that from people who've gotten up and left this church once or twice over the years. They say, oh, you never preach about anything practical. All this doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Well, here's a text full of doctrine, folks. But it's absolutely practical because Paul says, know this doctrine because it's the foundation on which you've got to stand and on which you have to hold on and cling. And if you will, it's going to be steady and you are going to be preserved in all the storms of life on this spiritual foundation of Jesus Christ offered for you, his physical body and blood offered for you to reconcile you as God's peace child. Don't stray from this foundation. There are all kinds of people who want to come along today and they say, oh, you know, this, you know these simplistic gospel guys, they're just fundamentalists. Oh, they just talk about the cross all the time. Well, I'm of the opinion that 
we can't talk about the cross too often or too much. It's our foundation, it's our core, it's our access, it's where we remain unmoved, where we take our stand, and we don't go forward into life depending on how I feel about Jesus today or how my, you know, things are going in my life. My retirement fund got wiped out, so I'm not so happy with God right now. Or whatever, I lost my job, God's not very good to me. Our foundation is not based on circumstances. It's not based on feelings. It's based on this core, finished work of God in Christ. And when you take your stand on that, you can be steadfast and immovable. I was God's enemy. You see, that should summarize the worst thing that can be said about you. No matter what you've ever done in your life, that's the worst. You were God's enemy at some time if you're a Christian today. You may still be God's enemy today if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ. But the best thing that can be said about your life is when you're able to say, God reconciled me to himself by making peace with me in the blood of his son. That changed position, you see, changes everything. It influences everything. It it influences my worship life. It influences my decisions that I make. It influences how I decide to spend my leisure time, how I will raise my children, how I will address my vocation. This changed position fastened on this foundation, everything's different. And I have an unshakable security. The foundation that withstands the tornado of life is on Christ, the solid rock I stand. I pray that you stand there. Stand fast and continue there to the glory of God. Our Father, we thank you that Paul didn't offer us some novel solution here, some list of things to do. He pointed us right back to the central transaction and said, here, take your stand. Help us to do that, not in our strength, but based on your wonderful grace that made this possible in the first place. We pray and we plead for that continuing faith to hold on, to trust, and to see the thing completed so that we might be presented perfect before you in Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.